You're listening to episode 135 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. How are you doing today, Steph? I'm not too bad, thank you. Sitting here scoffing my face with chocolate and uh, (laughs) enjoying my afternoon. How about you? I was going to say that's one of the benefits of working from home, but to be fair, we did that (laughs) at Dragon Hall as well. I actually think my chocolate intake has declined since being at home because there were so many biscuits and baked goods in the office, which was wonderful, but quite dangerous. Yeah, I know. You don't, you don't have that thing where someone like wanders into the office in the morning and goes, oh, I just baked this massive cake overnight. Oh, Everyone I, eat it. <laughs> I miss that so much. But yeah, equally, it's, it's, it's probably better that I don't just sit here eating chocolate all day. How are you? Yes, I'm, I'm fine. We had a half term last week, which meant there was no homeschooling, which makes everything considerably easier. Easier, um, yeah. <laughs> and obviously we've got the, the latest announcements from the UK government here, which looks like things, hopefully, fingers crossed, will start to gradually reopen over the summer. We're obviously internally at National Centre for Writing. We're discussing what that means for various programmes and possibilities and planning for the future, because we'd all love to get back to Dragon Hall in some capacity but obviously we'll do that as and when it's safe to do it. Sure I mean what what we're really leading up to Simon is the opportunity for us to be face-to-face doing the podcast again that's all I that's all I care about. I know I, I can barely remember what it's like to uh, to do this kind of thing in a room with somebody rather than down a <laughs> microphone down a computer. You can barely remember my face. Yes well it's the, it's the 24th of February 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording so uh, we're probably a few months out yet from being able to do that. But we'll get there one day. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly, exactly. So Steph, something we haven't talked about for a while. What are you reading at the moment? This knocked me for six when you brought this up because I'd, yeah, we haven't done this in a while, have we? So what I am reading at the moment, I've just started uh, a novella called Open Water, which is by Caleb Azuma Nelson. Uh, and this is, uh, yeah, it's published by Viking and I believe it came out this month, actually, at the beginning of this month. And it's a short novel about uh, two young uh, black British people who meet. Uh, One of them, the narrator, is a photographer um, and the young woman is a dancer. And it's a short story about uh, their falling in love. So it's it's really lovely so far. It's beautifully written, very poetic and very sensitive. So I'm having a great time reading it. I'm loving it so far. How about you? What are you reading? Well, I'm reading what may possibly be the opposite of that, which is a massive science fiction <laughs> adventure called Leviathan Wakes by wow. James S.A. Corey, which uh, people may be familiar with the television show The Expanse, and this is the oh, book sure. that, that is based upon. Oh, I didn't know that was based on a book. Yeah, it's based on a series of books, and judging by the first one, which is considerably large, um, I'm in this for a long time, but so far, really good. Really good. It's one of those strange things when you see a film or TV adaptation first and then go back and read the the novel that it's, it's based upon and mm. you can't help but kind of visualise the actors in yeah. the characters, even though the characters were written long before any of those actors were involved with it. But yeah, very enjoyable so far. That could be tricky sometimes, can't it? I like to... If I can, if I'm really looking forward to like a film or a TV series sometime that's been adapted from a book, I see if I can sneak the book in first because it can be, yeah, as you say, difficult not to picture the people that you've seen on screen. Yes, exactly. I think in this particular case, it works really well because the writers behind the book also work on the show. So you've oh, got the, the same creators involved all the way through. Mm. Um, so the whole thing kind of 
melds together really nicely that you in a way that you don't always get if mm. you know completely different people are doing the adaptation. So on the show today, we do not have big giant sci-fi, but we do have William Gregory, who is a translator, and he specializes particularly in theatre translation, so translating plays which is something of a, a niche area of translation and not something we've covered before, I don't think. No, I don't think so. William's talking with Sue Healy, who is the literary manager at the Finborough Theatre down in London. And the Finborough is actually where William's first translated play was performed back at the start of his career. So there's a nice oh, wow. little link up there. Lovely. This all came about because William was one of the translators in residence at the BCLT summer school last year. Yes, so the National Centre for Writing supports the British Centre for Literary Translation each year to run their International Literary Translation Summer School, which brings together writers and translators from around the world for a unique and intensive one-week programme of hands-on literary translation and creative writing practice. Yeah, and it's interesting actually because Kate, who kind of runs our international and translation programmes here at NCW, has mentioned that the pandemic and having to do everything via Zoom and online has been kind of had an interesting effect for translation because translators, given that their work is inherently international, are kind of more used to doing that kind of thing anyway. Mm. And actually the, the big events like the summer school, being able to run that internationally so that people can take part without necessarily having to do lots of traveling has mm. in some ways opened it up to people that may otherwise not have been able to attend. I've mentioned on the podcast before, I think way back when we first started doing it, that translation is something that I personally was not very familiar with Mm. uh, as a a craft and an art before I started working here. And it's something that I find kind of endlessly fascinating. And the podcast today with William and Sue chatting about William's career is no exception. It's full of really great stuff. So whether you're a translator or you would be a translator and you're wondering how to get into it, there's great practical and industry tips in here, but also some really in-depth discussion about the role of translation and how theatre translation kind of factors into that and the way that here in the UK, we tend to have quite uh, an insular attitude when it comes to entertainment in particular in the, in the translated films and translated plays and translated literature sometimes has a bit of a hard time in the UK mm. uh, and, you know, what can be done about it and how things are changing and, yeah full of great stuff so let's hand over to Sue Healy asking the questions and talking to William Gregory. William um, I'm really delighted you asked me to join you in conversation um, on the topic of translation in theatre. I, I was really intrigued when looking into you know, your background in in translation in theatre, that your first translated work was put on at the Finborough Theatre, where I'm literary manager, back in 2003. So I felt quite proud of that, even though it's absolutely nothing to do with me. It was way before my time. Um, but I, I'm also very curious as to how that came about and, and how you got to have a translated work on at the theatre. Sure. Well, yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you a bit about that. Well, f- first of all, I'm r- really thank you so much for agreeing to have this chat with me as well, because I was really happy that that circle could be uh, joined up. Actually, that connection with the Finborough. I was it. It, it sort of arose. I w- it wasn't accidental, but it certainly sort of wasn't within any. Pl- it wasn't planned with any sort of strategy. I suppose is the way to put it. So the play was a play called Springtime 
by a, a Spanish playwright called Julio Escalada. And I, and it was the year 2003. And at the time, I was still uh, a, a jobbing actor. So my background was I'd done my degree in modern languages and then done a postgrad in acting. And at that time, I was, you know, still uh, working as an actor. And I'd, I'd always really loved languages and I'd really enjoyed uh, translation modules at university. And I'd always sort of thought, oh, what would it be like to translate a play? It might be, it might be interesting. Um, and there's a, a cultural institute called the, the Instituto Cervantes, which is run by the Spanish government. It's sort of the, the equivalent of the British Council, I suppose, in that it, it, its job is to d- disseminate Spanish culture overseas. And, and in London, it has a, very, a, a library with a very small uh, theatre section. And I literally went to the theatre section of this library and, and plucked Springtime off the shelf in its original Spanish version and had a read of it and liked it and thought sort of in the in the sort of privacy of my own home as a as a personal project really just had a go at translating it just to see what that experience would be like and then once I'd done that and I'd enjoyed doing it and um, I I felt it had you know come out as as a half decent English version the next thing I did was get in touch with the writer and I probably don't advocate doing it in this order now but I sort of wrote him and went oh I've 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 translated your play. I hope that's okay. Um, and um, and I was thinking maybe I might do something with it. And actually, the first thing I did was, uh, with his permission, gather a group of friends together who were actors in a room in the Oval House Theatre, to just read it out and see what it sounded like and to play with it a little bit. One afternoon, one mm-hmm. Saturday afternoon, and then off the back of that, decided to start looking for opportunities to stage it. And at the time, there was a slot on a Sunday and Monday afternoon. One good thing about it was affordability, actually, because it was this opportunity to get a space for two days. Um, and I was able to, uh, fo- following conversations with Neil, the artistic director there, sort of hire, hire it for a couple of nights. And again, it feels like a different era. I don't know if this is the same now because of the way that London's changed and the economics have changed but you know I was able to find a room above a pub in Stepney to rehearse for f- completely free for a week and gathered together a group of sort of fellow I guess early career theatre folk um, to come and rehearse the thing um, and we staged it for a, we staged it for a couple of nights at, at the Finborough um, and it was that a glorious hot middle of a heat wave in 2003, middle of August, but we sold out for two nights and there was a real buzz about it and the and the playwright came over and he was really happy with it. And I look back on it as a, as a really, really beautiful experience and everything everything sort of stemmed from there, really. So, yeah, it was and it was fantastic, really fantastic that that space was available. Yeah, and, and I'm so glad to hear that it was such a positive experience and obviously it, it spurred you to go down the path of a career in theatre translation mm. so uh, had you ever translated any other text uh, like outside of theatre before was this your first ever translation of a text professionally uh, professionally my first yes yes yeah. so I'd done bits and bobs of uh, uh, translation in my for my degree but if I remember mm-hmm. rightly none of that was ever theatre uh, 
it was you know bits of literature and things and odd sort of late medieval treatises on saintly relics if i remember rightly um but no this was yeah my first go at translating anything so i suppose on you perhaps unusually i i came into translation as a as a theater translation first and foremost yeah Mm-hmm. I would say that that is pretty unusual. Most people who work as translators, you know, start off with um, books or journalism, etc. Certainly, I've had a little bit of experience in that in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and theatre translation is, you know, a, a, a kind of an, a very niche area of translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit on how, how different translation from theatre is yeah. to we'll say more mainstream translation jobs sure yeah I think I think there are two elements to it in a way one is the practice of doing it sort of when you're inside the translation and and, and how you go about it and the thing that comes up very often uh, is this the the fact that a, a translated play is intended to be performed by actors it's intended for voices uh, and so that's where this this word speakability or also known as performability starts to arise. And that's been written about quite a lot by academics like Susan Bassnett. And I suppose what's interesting for me is because I came to translation from acting, almost before I even knew about these theoretical concepts, I think I was always testing my translation for what it sounded and felt like when it was read out loud. Uh, and always starting out as a from my position as an actor, I suppose. So I would, I would translate and and then immediately read read the thing out loud to myself. And funnily enough, when I've then gone on to translate other other kinds of texts, whether that's something novelistic or whether it's the, um, a nonfiction book, um, I still read my translation out loud, even if it's several hundred pages long. I just can't. It's, I really sort of want to sense the voice of the of, of the English version and just check that at least in my ear it sort of has a rhythm that that, that convinces me. Although I don't think there's an, a, an objective measure of that. So what I, what I hear from people who come to it from the other direction, uh, an anxiety that they often have is is about that very thing. You know, oh, I've I've translated novels, but I'm not sure I could take on a play because of this this idea of performability and I'm not sure if I'd be able to be able to do that that's very very interesting and it's a wonderful marriage between you know your your two um, specialisms um, acting the theatre and and translation and also it sounds to me quite like a typical journey of um, the actor turned playwright Um, I find that actors tend to make pretty good playwrights because they understand subtext they understand Mm. how this needs to sound on stage so I I imagine that's um, an advantage that you uh, bring to a translation would you agree yeah I I, I think so to an extent Um, I'm I'm always a little I get a little bit um I'm torn a little bit because I think it definitely helped me in that first that first go of her translating a play because I was sort of doing it in a in a vacuum, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I was relying on my training as an actor and my instinct as opposed to sort of guide me through that. I wouldn't want to overstate the need for that because I do believe that you don't you don't have to be from a theatre background or an acting background to be able to translate a play really well. I mean. Um, 
and I know that because I've seen and read a lot of translations by people translating plays at this point who aren't necessarily actors and they do a brilliant job. Mm-hmm. I think what was different for me that might be different for people starting out now was at that time, as far as I was aware, that there weren't really any places to to, te- to test your work out, to train and to get and to get feedback on your translation. Very interesting. Whereas now I think that's 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 changed so if you so I would say that if if you don't have that background of theatre and you want to have a go of translating of translating plays now there are places you can go where you can you can try it out and and skill Mm -hmm. up if you like okay I think that raises a very interesting point because William you've mentioned change quite a bit there and Mm -hmm. you know how Mm -hmm. things were 10 years ago or 15 years ago and how they are now. And of course, in this plague year, everything Mm -hmm. has changed. But I mean, that aside, I wonder if you could comment on how translation in theatre has changed over the past 20 years, Mm. shall we say? Yeah. I think that one thing that's a great improvement, as far as I can see, is is opportunity for... um, for for, try, for training and trying it out. So, you know, you said earlier on that sort of theatre translation is kind of niche. And I think that nicheness uh, has applied equally as in the theatre world as in the translation world, really. Um, mm-hmm. And I've witnessed a change in the past few years where the the world of translation and of literary translation has started taking much more of an active interest in in theatre translation. Um, you're seeing you're seeing more uh, at translation events, for example. You're seeing more theatre translation panels taking place under the aegis of the British Centre for Literary Translation. Uh, there are more theatre translation events. There's the British Centre for Literary Translation Summer School that takes place every year. And uh, last year was the first year that that summer school had a theatre strand, which which I taught. And that strand is returning again in 2021. So in that realm, there is that there's much more conversation about it and much more opportunity for, for practical uh, experience. And then in the theatre world as well, I think we're starting to see more uh, more companies that have a real active interest in engaging with international playwriting and either by extension or by by design with translation thinking about companies like uh legal aliens or uh, cut the cord theater or um uh or global voices theater or foreign affairs um foreign affairs in particular who, who i meant i mentor on their on their theatre translation program, they are a theatre company who actually run a theatre translation program for translators. And when I was starting out, such an opportunity absolutely didn't exist. Um, so I think that's been fantastic progress, actually, for anyone who's interested in starting out. Okay, that all sounds very positive and as if things are heading in, in the right direction. I, I think it might be helpful if you... Um, mapped your own uh, progress as a theatre translation, a translator mm-hmm. from, um, you know, 2005 to today. I, mm-hmm. I, I know that you're a key translator down at the Royal Court Theatre, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, and I wonder if you could just talk us through that. Sure. 
Yeah, the, the connection with with the Royal Court, who I who I work as a freelance for freelancer for on on Spanish uh, plays written in Spanish, uh, I would say has been fundamental really uh, for my trajectory. So um, I was very lucky that when we did Springtime at two thousand in two thousand and three, uh, that coincided with with the beginning of a project that the late Elise Dodgson at the International Department of the Royal Court was running with a cohort of writers from Cuba and um, was uh, in need of uh, people to do translation for that project and and readers reporting and so on and so forth. So I had the opportunity to do a, a short sample translation of a couple of scenes of one of those plays and a, and a reader's report of one of them. Fortunately, that went well. And so I, I, was, I became one of the, the several translators working on that project. And Spanish being the, the, the widespread language that it is, um, that meant, I, that's meant that whenever the Royal Court has done a, a project in a Spanish-speaking country, of which they've done several over the last 17 years, um, mm-hmm. I've been able to be involved as a translator and sort of consultant on on those projects, um, mm-hmm. and then the rest, I suppose. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure, um, as a as a writer yourself, you'll recognise this, and I'm sure anyone working in theatre will recognise this. Uh, the rest has been sort of that combination of trying to network, trying to do a bit of of, of, of door knocking. Uh, and sometimes by virtue of a, of a recommendation here and there, having the opportunity to then start doing translations for other organisations, other projects. And, and, as, and as the years have gone on, I really wouldn't say it's snowballed, that's an exaggeration, but, you know, a, slow, a slowly rolling ball gathering a little bit of moss here and there. And to be in the, to be in the situation where I, where I am now, however however one might describe it. I wonder if you could describe it, if you could tell us what exactly you are doing now. Sure, absolutely. So, well, well the reason for this podcast is because I'm currently one of two uh, translators in residence at the British Centre for Literary Translation, uh, along with uh, Olivia Helliwell, who translates from Slovenian. And mm-hmm. this is the first uh, time the BCLT has had uh, translators in residence. Um and that's been, I mean, you mentioned the, the pandemic. I mean, this really, the timing couldn't be better, really, to have a period of time attached to an organisation um, and to be able to work on some personal projects, but at the same time to be doing uh, events like this, but also sort of running workshops, giving seminars and so on and so forth and spending the uh, sort of four months doing you know, a, a combination of my own work and that sort of more, I guess, outreach or educational type work. So I'm, I'm doing that until the end of this month. And then alongside that, I'm working on a, a couple of translation commissions at the moment. I'm working on a play called Tal Tal by the Chilean playwright Bosco Cayo. That's for a publisher in the US called Laertes Press. And I'm also working on a commission for a playwright called Marta Aran, who's uh, a writer from Barcelona, uh, a play called All of the Days I Lied, which is a fantastic monologue that I've been, that that I'm working on with her this month. And then last but certainly not least, I'm I'm a member of a a group called Out of the Wings, which is a collective of theatre makers and translators and researchers specialising in 
the theatre of the Spanish and Portuguese speaking world. And we are, uh, we've moved, as many organisations of our nature have moved all of our activities online, and we're suddenly uh, in the midst of organising our next week of events, um, which mm -hmm. Touch Wood will be able to give you some more detail about before too long. Okay, that that's really interesting. And just sort of finally, William, I'd, um, I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind me asking all these questions, I would like to ask you about where you see translation in, in theatre in 10 years' time in, in the UK. Oh, where do <laughs> I see it? Well... Where would you like to see it? Maybe that's a better question. <laughs> I'd really love to think about a, a kind of growth, I suppose. I'd really love to be in a place where plays that happen not to have originally been written in English are a habitual feature of the theatre landscape in the UK. Um, I mean, I, meant, I mentioned progress and I don't, uh, and, and I think there has been huge progress. Um, there's all the work that the, that the Royal Court does. Um, there are companies like The Gate, like ATC uh, and the other companies that I mentioned earlier who are doing huge amounts of international work and almost centering their work internationally. And that's, that's fantastic and long may that continue. I would really love to see those companies um, who we might say are not quote unquote international specialists for want of a better word, embrace theatre in translation as part of their programming and to and to be more actively interested and excited about writers who don't happen to write in English um, and I, I, I on my optimistic days I think there is a route to that on my less optimistic days I still feel that maybe there's some sort of um, maybe uns uh, unspoken resistance to to that i mean maybe this is time for me to ask you a question sue with your literary sure. manager head on although <laughs> i'm not asking you i mean I'm, I'm not asking you to speak for an entire for an entire industry but um someone who perhaps has a little bit more of an insight onto what what goes on on the other side of of, of, of it i guess you know um, yes. how do we how do we move how do we move forward to in, to increase the amount of theatre translation that's that is on our stages or indeed if you were the the william gregory of of, of 17 years ago with this with a play that he's translated from spanish and really really keen to get us an audience mm -hmm. for it you know where where to begin uh looking for opportunities for it i suppose yes um first of all i i do have to say that i cannot answer for all the, the, the theaters <laughs> no. in, in the uk but i can give you you know what i've observed mm. and what i felt i mean i think it's it's important also that i um highlight the fact that you know i'm irish um so mm. i'm not from this country mm. and i also spent half of my adult life in budapest in, mm. in hungary and i've translated from hungarian before yeah. and i also spent some years in in, in france so that's my own personal background. And I came to the UK um, about 12 years ago now. Mm. And I did my MA and my PhD and, and um, have had some plays on, on the radio and stage here in London yeah. and became literary manager at the Finbur. So I think it's just important to give that, you know, um, 
picture so people know where I'm, I'm coming from. Mm. Um, and yes, it, it, it has really struck me being here just in general, even stepping back from theatre, um, that it, it, there is a culture of insularity in, mm. in, in, in the UK. Um, people in this country tend not to speak another language when they go on holidays. And I'm hugely generalizing now. And I'm mm. speaking to people who all speak another language fluently, <laughs> of course. But, um, it, you know, in general, there there isn't that um, thrust um, towards linguistic ability. Um, I find that British people, when they go on holiday, they tend to go on holiday to the, the same place and hang out in British pubs and that. So there's there's a resistance mm-hmm. to embracing other cultures. And um, if I can really stretch things, I would say that um, Brexit is some is not unconnected to to this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's um, not surprising, really, that you get, I would say, an unconscious resistance in, in mm. British theatres to plays that are not written in English. Mm. Um, and I I don't think that's good. And I'm very glad that there are, um, you know, organisations like the uh, International Department of the Royal Court, um, ATC, uh, The Gate, etc., who, who push mm. back against that. Mm. Um, but it, I think it is an issue and that um, the UK is the poorer for it. Um, it's not only in theatre. I mean, you see resistance to foreign language films. And, you yeah. know, even books in translation are not as popular. They're seen mm. as somehow sub, which, you know, I think that is broadly an, an issue in, in this country. And I think for it to disappear entirely, well, it might take a long time, but also I think people have to recognise it. You know, you have right. to shout, this is here, this is a problem. Mm. This is ridiculous, and and your culture is suffering because of this, because you're yeah. close to this. And I don't think Brexit, I don't want to go off into Brexit, rant, mm. but, you know, I don't think Brexit is going to help this, you know. No. Um, so I, I, I think that generally you, you have to say it, you have to flag it up, it has to be challenged, you mm. have to ask... If a theatre turns you down and says, I'm afraid we don't look at translated work, you have to say why. And then perhaps go on social media and say, this is ridiculous. Does Mm. anybody know why this happens? You know, challenge it. I Mm. think it is something that really needs to um, be challenged. However, having said all Mm. that, having gone off in that big long rant, (laughs) if if this was 17 years ago and I was starting out as a translator, I probably wouldn't want to take on all the theatres in London because I probably would be, you know, it, it wouldn't probably wouldn't be a very good idea starting out. Mm. So I think starting out when you're wanting to build up a reputation, um, I think you need to knock on the doors of the theatres that have been open to translations mm. in the past and are at least continuing to be, you know, and and make friends within those circles um, so you mentioned, and I think it's worth mentioning again, so ATC, Actors Touring Company, mm-hmm. the Gate Theatre, the Royal Court International Department. Um, help me out. Where, where else did you say? So they're um, Foreign Affairs, uh, Cut mm-hmm. the Cord, um, Legal Aliens, uh, Global uh-huh. Voices Theatre, um, and uh, the London Spanish Theatre Company. Um uh, and and a few apologies for anyone who 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 I'm neglecting to 
mention, but I think uh, there are there are mm-hmm. certainly more, and um, and in particular, actually, you may find as well if you're translating from a particular language, you may find that there's a company that's particularly interested in the language you translate from. Um, yes, actually, that's a really good point. Mine, actually, um, for example, for Russian, but mm-hmm. uh, that's a good list to be starting off with. Yeah, and that, and actually, there might be funding available from various cultural institutes and embassies, etc. If you are translating a play from a particular language, and mm. theatres always like the the sound of the word funding, so mm. it is worth mentioning that you know if you can secure some funding and approach a theatre, um, you know if the play is good and you've got funding, you increase your your chances of of getting uh, a platform for your play. Um, so I think, you know, certainly if I was starting out as a translator, I'd be in contact with all of those companies. I'd, you know, be networking. But I would also take whatever opportunity I can to highlight this issue and, and make people here wake up to the fact that they, they're shutting themselves off from the rest of the world, which is something that people in theatre particularly should be guarding against, not enabling. You know, so that I think that is hugely important. Um, you know, we at the Finborough, I mean, obviously we have had translated works on, you've been on and, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've had Sartre and um, oh, uh, Claudel, um, you know, so many works that were not um, originally written in English, like, for example, Waiting for Godot, you know, which obviously <laughs> was written in French um, first, but, uh, and Brecht, of course. But, uh, you know, so th- these are plays that you do see on, on, on British theatre, but I agree that there, we haven't, um, we don't have a great record at the Finborough. And I think it's partly also to do with the niche thing, um, because, mm-hmm. you know, for many years uh, on the fringe, the gate was the translation play, uh, playhouse. Yes. So um, the the Finborough kind of stuck with its niche, which when it looked outside of the UK, it looked to Ireland, to Canada, Australia, to the Anglophone world. Um, and that was its kind of niche, mm. you know. Um, but that, um, I mean, I have spoken with the artistic director about this, who's been at the, the Finborough for a long, long time. Mm. And, you know, he's uh, he would say that, of course, you know, we at the Finborough are open to translated plays, um, and and you know we certainly are. But I I do think that there's also something else underlying this, and not just at the Finborough all over, mm-hmm. um, because there's a, a poverty of second language knowledge in the UK. It mm-hmm. means that um, you know artistic directors and and the reading team and that will only speak English. So Mm. they will have difficulty reading the source material. They'll have difficulty reading or getting people to translate even um, reviews of, you know, that play in its original language, Mm. et cetera. So, I mean, it it might be worth bearing that in mind that if you are approaching um, uh, a theatre that you come armed with translations, Uh, of of all the related material as well, you know, I I, I do yeah. understand it to a certain. It's a disadvantage of speaking the international language because English is the mm. international language. You know, it is the most widely spoken across the world, mm. and it is the the language of business, etc. So you know, 
nearly everybody has a little a smattering of English. So it means if you speak English, you don't have to learn another language. But this is one of the big disadvantages mm. is that it does tend to shut you off mm. from other languages and, and culture, I think. That, yeah. that, that's that's a really interesting observation, Sue. And I wonder actually if there's a if there's a, a practical point that comes out of that 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 um to go back to your early question earlier question actually about the differences between translating say novels and and plays. Um, my understanding of, of of the practice in in publishing of novels, for example, is that a publishing house will um, be uh, be persuadable of the merit of commissioning a translation and publishing a translation based on, uh, for example, a, a reader's report and a short sample from a short sample translation uh, mm -hmm. from said novel. Whereas my Im impression, I'd be interested to see what you what you think about this, mm -hmm. is that that's not the same for theatres. That theatres aren't uh, don't don't t t tend to need the whole play in mm -hmm. English in front of them before yeah. being able to make a decision. Is that something that chimes with, with you from the way you see it? Um, I, I think that's probably correct. Mm. Um, it's, it's, you know, a, a, it's a bigger deal to translate a full book, I yeah. think, as well. Yeah. So, you know, mm. do bear that in mind. Yeah. So it, it might be too much of an ask, mm. you know, to, to see the full translation of, of a book up front. But, um, yeah, I... I I think that when you approach a theatre in the UK, because there is that resistance, whether it's acknowledged or not, um, you will have to provide, um, how can I say, persuasive proof that this is mm. a good investment. Mm. And um, and I think not only the translation of the play and the reviews, but you might also, sorry to be cynical, but also um, how well it's done, perhaps even at the box office, mm. you know, in its original production. You do need to persuade. Yeah, so. And um, just, again, sort of think, thinking practicalities as well. Um, and I, I know this varies a lot from theatre to theatre, but again, just for, again, for, for people who, for whom this may be a, a sort of new territory, how... How does a theatre like the Finborough um, like to receive uh, suggestions, submissions, etc. in general? And I know this varies hugely from theatre to theatre, doesn't it, in terms of how, as it were, open yeah. the, a, a company is to what gets called unsolicited um, submissions. Yeah. Well, at the Finborough, we um, we have a reading department, which I head, and we get roughly about a thousand unsolicited um, plays a year mm -hmm. in English language, original um, English language plays. Mm -hmm. um, we get, I wouldn't say we get translations so much. I mean, occasionally we will get plays from playwrights um, who have who, for whom English is not a first language and they have written a play. So it's clear that it might need a little bit of work mm -hmm. if on, on the English, mm -hmm. you know, just to bring it up to scratch. Mm -hmm. um, we we get a few of those and, and they're always very interesting. You know, we might get them from, for example, from uh, Nigeria, from mm. um Syria, you know, from you know places mm. that have that are living through interesting times, was shall we say? Um, yeah. So that th th this is always of interest to mm. us. 
Um, but we actually get sent in very little translated works. Yeah. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to see translated plays. But, uh, of course, it has to be a good play as well. You know, yeah. we, and it, it has to be well translated and that. But if it is relevant, if it's urgent, if it's got heart, um, if, it, if it engages the audience, um, we don't really care, you know, what, mm. that it was written in another language initially. Uh, if the translation is good, we're very happy to see it. Though this does actually bring to mind um, one thing, which I this is not the case at the Finborough, but I sometimes suspect it might be the case elsewhere, maybe perhaps particularly in more regional theatres, mm. where they have a funding pot, which I think in terms of new writing, they would prefer to fund local playwrights. Mm. Um, so again, I think that might take a little bit of convincing that funding local translators is just as commendable mm. as supporting local playwrights so um th- that could be an issue you know and that could be you know something i suppose to a degree that's understandable if you get well we have enough trouble supporting northwest playwrights then yeah. why should we be supporting a bolivian playwright you know certainly i've come across theatres where um you know i've been on so i've been on twitter or have you and and they've they've said oh our submission window is open and i've got excited because i've got some fantastic plays from spain or south america that i'd love to share with them and then i go into the small print of their of their submission window when they say we do not accept translations uh you know they (laughs) they say it in terms we do not accept translations or we don't accept plays or we only accept plays that are written by writers based in the UK or Ireland. It, it's interesting to hear you talk about what might be some of the reasons behind that. I, I, I think it's true, isn't it? It's not an enviable, not an enviable position to be in, in a sense. If you're running a, if you're running a theatre and you've, there are so many playwrights writing in so many languages and and you've you've only got a very limited amount of space on your stage in any given season or mm-hmm. on your on your zoom account in in the seasons we're living in at the moment and it, it is an unenviable task i suppose to try and strike that balance that wants it simultaneously to be serving the local community yeah. uh, but also reaffirming th- that sense of theatre as being international practice yeah. i like your idea though um of, of nurturing local uh, translators um, and I suppose one thing that's been uh, one of the silver linings if we can say that about the pandemic has been that the translation world in terms of spaces of exchange and networking and training has become more accessible in a sense to those people who don't happen to live either in the UK or in the metropolitan centres of the UK but I'm, I, 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 but on the flip side when I when I, I think there are some examples of practice where it I've seen translations being sort of explicitly embraced in call outs. So, mm-hmm. for example, Theatre 503 uh, have their uh, two, every two years their International Playwriting Award. And this year they very explicitly uh, and in terms mm-hmm. said that they welcomed, played, welcomed plays in translation. Uh, and it's, it's such a pleasure to, to see mm-hmm. that very explicit rubric when you're a translator because because you really think oh wow here's a here, here's here's a company that that act actively wants to to see work in translation and just going that little step beyond being being quote unquote open to to sort of quote unquote actively seeking is yes. something that I really really welcome 
I, you know, from what I've read on translation, there's a lot of um, talk about uh, theatres in the UK leaning towards literal translation. And mm. to me, that sounds ah. like having put something through Google Translate, and it sounds like mm. quite awful and quite yeah. fun because it would be so dreadful. <laughs> so <laughs> I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and explain what the issue is. Okay, well, um, so... The practice of literal, of, of quote-unquote, I've, I've always got um, my fingers in quotation marks whenever I say literal translation. Um, uh-huh. But the, 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 the practice basically is that a, uh, a, a company wants to produce a production of normally what we would call those sort of canonical classic writers, your Chekhovs, your Ibsens, your, your Lorcas, and they will... Um, they will engage a a, a well-known uh, English language playwright to write this version, um, and then they will separately engage a translator to produce what is called a literal translation of the play. And that that text uh, and, and the, the translator will normally be given a, a flat fee, and they won't retain the copyright in in their translation. And that text will be given to the the writer slash adapter. Um, And the play will then be produced as uh, uh, under the title of, uh, let's say, let's say a doll's house, just just for Mm -hmm. the argument, uh, in a version by or adapted by. Uh, Very rarely now will you see it being called translate, being stated as translated by that. That that right. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Um, so, 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 so that's the that's the the sort of sequence that that takes place, um, and what, and and this is a practice that has been much contested and much debated and much criticised by uh, translation scholars and and translation practitioners for, yeah, I think we can say decades now because of the way that it's. Uh, as it were, sort of diminishes the role of the 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 linguist, diminishes the role of the person who who has the language to understand the original, and also secondarily, sort of denies denies the creative uh, potential of the of the of that person's work. So a literal mm-hmm. translation is expected to be sort of um, you know accurate and with lots of footnotes, but not performable, as it were. The performable right. is the job of the playwright. Um, and I, I understand the, um, you know, I, I think in a way when you make, when you're making theatre, all, all approaches are valid, I think, as long as you're honest with the audience about what, what they're being given. But I, but in those situations where a company really feels the need to work like this, I would love to see the translator who is engaged be afforded the opportunity to be in a more actively collaborative role in the making of the, of the performed text. I'd love to see them retain copyright. I'd love to see them get equal billing. I'd love to see us talking about co-translations. And I think we're a long way away from that. But, but uh, I, I, I think what, what, what seems to be happening, what seems to have happened is that there's been a lot of criticism of this, of this approach, but that the, producers and companies that adopt this approach haven't really wanted to engage too much with 
with with that conversation. Uh, but there are writers again, like Susan Bassnett, like Ava Espasa, who have who have written at length about this and sort of pointed out its 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 problems. Yeah. Put it that way. You know, I would I would love. I'll say it here now. I would love to have have a chance to to translate some Lorca for performance. But mm-hmm. the chances of me doing that are are are, are pretty slim under the current mm-hmm. way that uh, writers like. Lorca are produced by our our yeah. uh, major ma- larger companies, uh, I, and I'd love for that to be a conversation that we could start to have. I know there are, I know there are there are noble reasons for for sort of continuing to work that way, but I think it's something we could have better conversations about. Certainly, I think there's a lot. You know, sort of finishing up. Um, I think there's a lot about. Um, the whole subject of translation that people in theatre haven't really thought about. They haven't given it consideration. Mm. And uh, people in theatre tend to be quite um, open-minded and and progressive in their way of thinking, but there's a bit of a blind spot when it comes to translation and translated works. And um, unfortunately, I think there's, it's, it's still a battle that has to be fought and that. And a lot of it will be to do with bringing this to the attention of theatres and getting them to reflect on their stance, really, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I think as well, um, there is there is some headway being made there. I think, um, and it was all the, these these conversations are always longer and slower than than perhaps we we might like. But I've certainly felt moments of encouragement over the past few years so I think as long as we keep we keep having conversations like this and and exploring the ideas together I think I I think we can certainly get somewhere definitely and things will get better they'll get more open they will absolutely well I I think I think we've probably come to a natural end at at that point Sue do you think yes yes I think it's been really interesting and um, very informative talking to you about all of this well, Sue, um, I think I think we've come to come to the end. Uh, thank you so much for being here with me today. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm particularly grateful to you for your insights f- from, if if you like, the the inside of of some of those decision making processes that that our our theatres have. I think that's that's been so useful and informative and um, really helpful. So thanks so much. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's been really interesting talking to you and, and quite insightful. And and a reminder that there is a, a battle yet to be fought in terms of translation in theatre in this country. So thank you so much for having me along. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. And thanks to William and Sue for that wonderful conversation. If you have any questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. Check out our Facebook page and head over to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, where you can also sign up to Steph's weekly newsletter. That is, in fact, what it is titled when it comes into your inbox, Steph's weekly newsletter. Yeah, what's Steph been up to? Uh, You can also join our Discord community, which is a free online chat area for writers all around the world and is full of lovely people sharing tips and techniques and sharing work for feedback and that kind of thing so steph we have lots of amazing podcasts coming up this year so many (laughs) that we're 
queued up until the summer. We are fully booked. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we truly are. We've got so much coming up. It's fantastic. I'm very excited about it all. So yeah, next week, Peggy is back on the podcast and she is talking to writer Horatio Clare, whose book Heavy Light is out in March. And this is subtitled A Journey Through Madness, Mania and Healing. And halfway through the interview, a heron flies past Horatio's house, which gets both of them very excited. And it was lovely. I bet Peggy was, (laughs) I can only imagine how excited Peggy was, actually. Uh, Yeah, I think it made her weak. And then in a couple of weeks, uh, you're talking to Sonia Falero. Yeah, I had a wonderful conversation with Sonia, actually, a few weeks ago. So Sonia is an Indian journalist and a nonfiction writer. And her latest book, The Good Girls and Ordinary Killing, was published earlier in the year by Bloomsbury. So we spent a bit of time catching up about the book, which focuses on the shocking deaths of two teenage girls called Padma and Lali, who are living in a small village in northern India, and they died in 2014. Um, But Sonia uses their story as a springboard for a much larger conversation about sexual assault and violence against women in India. So it's a very, very powerful book, but it's also a real page turner. So I spoke to Sonia about the journey of her career through um, journalism into nonfiction writing and how she researched and pulled together this book, because there are so many characters. There's a huge cast of characters and people involved. She had to do so much research. And there's a, a really difficult or complicated balance between fact and fiction as well because some of the early interviews she conducted I don't think she was quite getting the full or the true story out of the people she was interviewing so she had to go back and kind of piece those bits together and find out what was the truth and what was in fact more fiction so I'm really looking forward to people hearing this conversation I was just completely yeah bowled over by Sonia she's a fantastic speaker that sounds astonishing It is brilliant. And yes, we're recording new podcasts every week at the moment, multiple podcasts at a time sometimes. And end of this week, I'm talking to a computer game writer, which I am extremely excited about. I won't say the name yet because I don't want to jinx it, but we'll have the interview with him coming up later in the year. It was a game that won many, many Game of the Year awards back in 2020. So if you're into your interactive writing, that is one to look out for. It's exciting. People can start guessing now. Yes. Yeah. Send in your best guesses to our (laughs) Twitter account. (laughs) We can't confirm or deny, but it would be good fun anyway. So yeah, with all that amazing stuff coming up, and there's lots more we haven't mentioned because we actually don't have time to mention all of it. There's so much amazing interviews on the way. We're very lucky to get to talk to all these amazing writers (laughs) every week. But yeah, to make sure you don't miss them, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We do this every week and it will appear nicely in your podcast app as long as you subscribe. And while you're there... If you have the ability to leave a review or rate us, that would be lovely. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm